Hello, you're listening to this month's edition of In On The Act with Sarah Jackman. Today, I'm joined by Joe Ollick and Toby Bonsi, barristers at Falcon Chambers, to discuss part eight of the levelling up and regeneration bill. The bill, which is currently at report stage in the House of Commons, makes provision for local authorities to let empty commercial properties, which have been vacant for a year, in town centres or high streets, via compulsory rent auctions. Joe, Toby, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Great to have you on the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about the Part 8 provisions today. I've touched very briefly on them in my intro there. Perhaps you can just start, though, by explaining in a little bit more detail what's proposed under Part 8 of the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill. Certainly, Sarah. Well, well, thanks very much for having us. As you say, um, we're currently still going through the House of Commons, so there's a lot of detailed provision in the bill, none of which is final uh, as things stand. But I'll give you the the broad strokes of the current proposals as they're currently drafted. What the bill does is give local authorities the power to designate a local street in their area or or an area within their area as a high street or a town centre. If they consider it to be important to the local economy because of a concentration of certain defined high street uses. Um, And those high street uses include what you might expect, so um, shops, offices, provision of services to the public, restaurants, bars, cafes, and so on, and also public entertainment, recreation venues, communal halls, meeting spaces. As things stand at the moment, there's a slightly bizarre bit of drafting in the bill, which says um, a street or area is not to be designated if the authority considers that its importance derives principally from goods or services purchased in the course of business. Now, that seemed to me to be slightly odd because it seems to exclude main shopping streets and high streets from the definition of high streets. Um, it's not clear to me why that is. And it may, may be that that would make the act a bit of a dead letter, but it seems to me that's a kink that is likely to be ironed out as, as the thing goes through Parliament. So once the local authorities designated a local street or area as a high street or town centre, the act applies to qualifying high street premises, which are premises in that defined street or, or centre, uh, which the local authority thinks uh, or considers uh, suitable for high street use. And the local authority doesn't just have to look at the premises as they exist at the time, it can also consider if works were done to the premises, would they be considered suitable for high street use. If it does think that the premises are suitable, then the local authority can give what's called an initial notice to the landlord of the premises. The landlord being uh, a person entitled to possession of the premises with a sufficient interest to grant a one year long lease. If the local authority wants to serve an initial notice, it can do so if two conditions are satisfied. They are called the vacancy condition and the local benefit condition. Now, the vacancy condition you've alluded to, which is the one about the premises having been unoccupied for a year. um, in, In particular, the premises have to be unoccupied on the date of the notice and also to have been either unoccupied for the whole preceding year or for at least 366 days during the previous two years. And of course, the test there is is occupation and the specific provision that says that um, a state of affairs does not amount to occupation for those purposes unless it involves the regular presence of people at the premises. And you may be aware that the test for occupation in, in different contexts can vary, but here what we're looking at is the presence of people on a regular basis. 
Now, occupation is, is something of a nebulous concept, and we've had recent cases about occupation, such as, for example, the Compton Beach decision on telecoms in the Supreme Court. And it seems to me there may well be some degree of scope for dispute about what is meant here by the regular presence of people at the premises. We then have the second condition, which is the local benefit condition, and that's satisfied essentially if the local authority thinks that the occupation for their proposed high street use uh, would be beneficial to the local economy or society or environment. So what, what happens once the initial notice is given to the landlord? Well, then you have a period of 10 weeks from the notice in which the landlord cannot let or grant a license of the premises without the consent of the local authority. But if the landlord finds a suitable tenant for the suitable high street use, uh, then the local authority has to consent to that letting. And essentially, the landlord is given a period of eight weeks, because as we'll see, there's a further notice that can be given in the last two weeks to get on with it and let the premises. So you, you've got this 10 week period within which you can't let. If eight weeks elapse from the date of that notice without the premises having been let, then the local authority can give this final letting notice within the last two weeks. Pausing there, it's interesting to note that the landlord is only given eight weeks from the date of the notice to have let the premises before this final letting notice can be given. And in fact, it was proposed by Labour during one of the discussions that there should be an amendment to change that period of eight weeks to 14 days on the basis that the landlords already had plenty of time because the vacancy condition will be satisfied. And so the premises will have been unoccupied for a year or a large part of the last two years. But it was thought that eight weeks would be a more reasonable time within which to advertise, find a tenant and complete the letting. So local authority then gives its final letting notice within the last two weeks of the 10 weeks. And that triggers a further period of 14 weeks, during which, again, the landlord can't let or license the premises without consent, also can't carry out works apart from certain urgent works without consent. And during that 14 week period, the local authority can arrange for what's called a rental auction to be carried out for the specified high street use that the local authority wants to have the premises used for. If the rental auction is carried out, then 42 days after the date of the final letting notice, the local authority can enter into what's called a tenancy contract with the successful bidder in that auction. And that takes effect as if it were a contract that the landlord had entered into rather than the local authority. And it's a contract to grant to the successful bidder a tenancy of between one and five years in length, uh, to which the 54 Act won't apply. And the rent will be the amount of rent specified by the successful bidder during the auction process. And the terms of the tenancy to be granted will have to fulfill various specified descriptions, which are gone through in some detail in the Act, but only in fairly um, framework terms. Um, and more detail is to be provided uh, in regulations to follow. The terms of the contract can include uh, provision for pre-tenancy works to be carried out to the premises either by the tenant or by the landlord. Now, if the landlord doesn't grant that tenancy pursuant to that contract, there's then provision for the local authority to grant it for them. And that grant will have effect as if the tenancy had been granted by the landlord, and it will be deemed to have been entered into with the express consent of any superior landlord or mortgagee. Now, if given that final letting notice, the landlord has the opportunity to give a counter notice within 14 days, saying that it wants to appeal to the county court. And then there's a procedure whereby it can do that and the various time limits are paused. And appeals can be made on various specified grounds, which I won't bore you with all of them, but they, some of them try to ape grounds F and G of the 1954 Act. 
and some of them relate to whether the local authority has actually satisfied all of the qualifying conditions for giving the notices. The last point to note is that there are a number of powers that the local authority is given by the bill to obtain information about the land or to survey the land or to enter the land. And the landlord will be entitled to compensation for damage which is caused by the local authority as a result of the exercise of powers of entry. But apart from that, no compensation is payable in respect of the, the powers under the bill, including the impact of the rental auction process and any uh, tenancy the landlord is forced to enter into as a result. So if the rent, for example, is a lot lower than the landlord might have liked, then bad luck. <laughs> compensation for that is excluded. So that's, that's what the proposals are. It might be helpful to refer to a comment by the shadow minister for levelling up made in a House of Commons debate on the 13th of October. He said, as the minister explained, in practice, these notices are likely to act as a kind of kick up the backside provision, <laughs> a shock to the landlords to get them moving and renting out their premises, lest they end up renting to someone they weren't intending to rent to or for less than they were hoping for. So that's pretty much it. And it's all pretty draconian. All right. So let's delve into that a little bit further. You mentioned the auction process for attracting the bidders and, and potentially finding a tenant to take on a property. How will the process work? Hi, Joe here. I'll, I'll take that one. The answer is that at this stage, it's quite wonderfully vague. The bill as Toby mentions, provides that regulations are to be made, and that, that includes provision for how this auction process should be implemented. But those regulations, of course, are not yet formulated or promulgated, so we don't know exactly what the process will be. The bill itself does, however, say something about what those regulations must, at a minimum, make provision for and what they may make provision for. So we know something of the shape of it. So when these regulations are developed, they must provide that the suitable high street use of the premises is to be specified by the local authority ahead of the auction. So that indicates that the local authority is going to have to decide in advance what type of shop or retail use it wants to see operating from the premises. The regulations also have to provide the identification of the person as a successful bidder. That seems to be rather obvious. Normally the person who bids the most is the winner of an auction. But it also has to make provision for where there's been no successful bidder, which is less obvious and one wonders what that is intended to capture. But I think it anticipates a situation where a reserve price hasn't been met, perhaps. And then you have to have a way of saying who the next successful bidder would have been. It doesn't quite chime, perhaps, with the kick up the backside that Toby mentioned and the possibility that the local authority won't have to compensate people if they get very low rents in. So why there needs to be some sort of anticipated reserve has yet to be seen. But as I say, that, that, that's the strokes of, of what is anticipated at the moment. Then the regulations may make a provision for unsuccessful bidders as being successful in another instance. For example, if a local authority decides it is not practical to enter into a contract with the person who would otherwise have been the successful bidder. So maybe it just runs into difficulties with the winner at the auction. The regulations must allow for the local authority to default to somebody else. The regulations may also might also include provision about with whom and on what terms the local authority can enter into arrangements for the auction. That's just leaving it out there 
for what still needs to be defined is how the local authority goes about identifying the right auction house or auction body, whether it's going to be local estate agents, whether it's an auction process that's done by estate agents or by or, or by Savills at a proper auction. There must need there needs to be a control or process put into place for which auction bodies the local authority can engage in. So there's an element here of stating the obvious. Um, the best we can say is there will be some sort of auction process by which the local authority will decide in advance what retail use it wants to see at these premises, and then we'll see. Assuming then at the end of that process, a potential tenant is found. I mean, you mentioned, Toby, before some of the counter notice procedures that might be available. Tell me a little bit about the extent to which a landlord is bound to accept a tenant, even if, for example, there might not be a good fit with the the rest of the retail in that particular area? So I suppose that the preliminary thought I would have there is that there isn't actually anything in the legislation that requires the local authority to actually enter into the tenancy contract with um, a, a tenant that is found. But of course, should it do so, then you then have the problem that the landlord uh, may find itself in breach of contract if it fails to grant the tenancy for which it is deemed to have contracted. And if it doesn't do that, then the local authority, as I say, can grant the tenancy on its behalf. So it can be bound by a tenancy and a contract to grant that tenancy, where the tenancy can be up to five years long, and the tenancy being the the tenancy produced as a result of this auction process, uh, whether they like the tenant or not. As you say, one can imagine situations where the landlord might not be particularly impressed to find a new tenant using premises in a particular, you know, high class retail environment for particular uses, you know, as a community centre or a pub or something, both of which might be suitable high street uses under the bill. So the landlord's control over its asset is to a certain extent um, taken away from it. And the landlord isn't able to maintain its existing tenant mix as a matter of right. So obviously, you can imagine difficulties in relation to estate management and problems both with the existing tenants and also getting off on the wrong foot with the tenant who was the successful bidder under the auction. Of course, landlords will have the opportunity to engage with the local authority about its proposals and indeed their suitability from an early stage, um, if there were any genuine reasons for concern, because as Joe says, the authority has to specify the suitable high street use it is proposing uh, ahead of any rental auction. Now, of course, it may well be that the local authority has different views about the suitability or otherwise of particular uses of particular premises. And uh, if, if the landlord concludes that those are outrageously unreasonable views, then there may well be scope for public law challenges. But of course, whether that would be possible would depend on the precise circumstances and the authority's reasons. Mm. You mentioned at the end of your intro that the proposals are draconian. Talk me through, from a landlord's perspective, the particular issues that they might be concerned about. I mean, you've you've touched on some of them there in terms of tenant mix and so on. But what, what are the other things that would be leaping out? Fundamentally, it seems to us the biggest concern any landlord will face is the prospect, quite simply, that a lease will be imposed, uh, which will take effect with it as it being the landlord in circumstances where it has had either little or limited or no control over the terms of that tenancy. Now, that surely is going to be a chilling prospect for any landlord who is concerned about any of the terms that could be at stake in a tenancy agreement, whether it's the level of rent payable, the use the premises being put to, the covenant strength of the tenant who's found, the obligations full and repairing, repairing and maintenance on either party needs to be ironed out, and that's something that's important to every landlord. 
Um, anything you can think of from a commercial perspective, a landlord has a legitimate interest and a proprietary interest in being control of. Obviously, that seems to me to be the biggest driver here, actually, in terms of incentive to force the landlord to try and take steps to find tenants if he is served with a letting notice in a rundown high street and where there is local pressure from residents or, or the local authority to ensure there is some footfall and some form of presence on the high street rather than just a derelict street scene where if it's let to simple market forces, the landlord might otherwise not let the premises. So for the landlord's perspective, if, if this risk is materializes in the form that it looks like it, it is, it must be far more preferable to take some proactive steps to find some sort of tenant or occupier oneself and control that. Of course, in an ideal world, landlords would like to get the right tenant at the right price, the best money it can find. But if it can't do that, it needs to be prepared to adjust its expectations or face leaving it in the lap of the local authority gods. So in terms of some of the detail in the bill, this overriding concern from the landlord's perspective is in some regards mitigated by some of the provisions that are in draft form. And in other senses, they are emphasized. So for example, it is a requirement suggested in the bill uh, that any letting must make provision requiring the tenant to keep the premises in repair and to insure them. So that's a good point from the landlord's perspective. And as a headline, that sounds right. It's the kind of thing that we see in all commercial leases. They're almost always on full repair. They're all FRI leases. Um, but the details of those terms are completely unknown. The fundamental idea that these should be the tenant's responsibility is reassuring, but the implementation is uncertain. Other indications are so high level that they can exacerbate the concern I've mentioned. So, for example, uh, provisions which are to be included will deal with obligations that the landlord may have with respect to maintenance and repair of anything outside the premises that enables or facilitates the use of the premises or with regard to the supply of water, energy or telecom services to the premises. And you can foresee that those are matters of detail that can vary from property to property or from landlord to landlord and how one structures service charge payments for or any mechanism to recover the costs of services provided by the landlord. All of that is just nebulous. There's nothing said about it. There must be provision for these things, but the detail of it is absent. So it's very broad brush. So there's no prescriptive set of terms that are provided for in the bill. So one naturally can anticipate any number of difficulties arising. Let's talk a little bit about rental values. What is the effect if the local authority does secure a letting at a, a particular rental value, perhaps it's heavily discounted? What is the effect there just in terms of rental values on a particular high street or in a particular area? Well, it, it, thinking about that in the round, it seems likely that if that were to happen, it would risk uh, setting in motion a knock-on effect on the surrounding area, either on the same street or in the broader local area. Uh, by potentially driving comparable rents downwards. So there will be some active markets somewhere on this high street or in the vicinity. And if you think about other premises that are in fact let between well willing parties at a rent review stage or new lets when obviously advisors for tenants are looking around for comparable rates, then the market may potentially become skewed in those circumstances with the local authority arranged letting. The local authority is gonna be responding to forces other than the purely market forces, as I mentioned, that may be driven by local politics or a desire for a busier high street scene, and that will distort the market. Now, some might say that's a good thing, 
because it will lead to a truer reflection of the high street value of what needs to happen to get the premises populated. Um, and therefore prices must drop correspondingly to attract tenants. So maybe the distortion is more fear than actual because one might expect that in the type of sh shuttered high streets where this process is most likely to unfold if it, if it comes into force and the conditions are met, the prices will already be low. So one can, one can say that at a theoretical level, this is the impact, but in actual terms, it may be very close to the reality anyway. However, I think more subtle complexities could emerge by differentiation between the immediate and very immediate vicinity of these types of streets. If one widens the scope and considers streets further afield, but still within some sort of touching distance of, of a street that's being treated in this way, you always find valuers in either in rent reviews or most commonly in rent reviews, but obviously in new lets as well, debating that the relevant pool of comparables from near or far with the landlord reaching for one type of set of comparables and the tenant for the other. So you could end up with a layer of complexity, a new layer of complexity in valuation disputes where tenants on otherwise good high streets will be reaching for comparables on the one that the local authority has been dealing with versus a landlord arguing for tighter cordons around streets that are by natural market forces nicely occupied and a high street or a town centre zone that has become local authority managed. And that could set the scene for some interesting valuation arguments and further litigation in that kind of scenario. We know that the reasons why a property might be vacant are numerous and, and can be complex. Does the bill oversimplify the issue in relation to being able to rent a property that has been vacant for a year or, or over a period of two years? Well, potentially it does, yes. The RICS has, has already described the proposals as being a blunt tool. And although obviously there, there are a large number of vacant commercial units across the country, plainly it's a, a good idea to try and reduce blight and enable high streets to thrive. Um, the problem is that the bill proceeds on the assumption, which in, in many cases might be wholly wrong, <laughs> that the cause of the unit being empty is an unwillingness on the part of the landlord to let it. It's only helpful to give the landlord a kick up the backside if the landlord is, is not doing anything. Of course, commercial landlords don't usually try to hold on to vacant properties for the sake of it if they could let them to a willing tenant. Uh, not least because for as long as they do that, uh, they won't have the rental income and they may bear the business rates liability for the premises. There might be all sorts of reasons why premises remain empty apart from landlord unwillingness. So we'll all be familiar with the changing consumer habits as a result of the growth of online retail, which itself has affected the viability of many high street businesses. The COVID-19 pandemic obviously has had a, a similar effect on, on, on many businesses, many of whom haven't yet recovered or may not do so at all. Sometimes the level of business rates make particular uses unviable. Uh, there might be planning difficulties in relation to the property, or there may just be a lack of demand, especially in a weak economy or in a weak area. So compulsory rental auctions might not actually produce willing tenants in many cases, unless perhaps they can acquire premises at a rent that from the landlord's perspective is uneconomically low. Of course, the, the bill only confers powers on the local authority. It doesn't mandate that they use them if there are other good reasons why the premises remain empty. Um, the problem from a landlord's perspective or, or the fear from a landlord's perspective uh, appears to be that an inability to find a suitable tenant at a commercial or economic rent might not be regarded as a good reason. You allude to it there, but I mean, to what extent do you think local authorities will act on the Part 8 provisions should they become law? 
Well, Joe here again. I have my own hunch is that this is an area where local authority fools will rush in, where local authority angels will fear to tread for two broad reasons. The, the first is resource driven. I think the time and resources and attention that will need to be devoted to this type of project by local authorities is considerable, possibly even immense in terms of think about what they'll have to do. They'll have to have officers in place who will monitor premises, monitor high streets, make sure they've been vacant for the appropriate amount of time, make the assessments as to the nature of the high street scene, uh, whether conditions are met. What if an officer misses a pop-up shop that opens for a month within a, a year, or a landlord tried that wheeze is stuck, stuck in an occupier for a limited amount of time, and officer checked it one day and then came back seven months later to check again, it's it's really a very difficult type of thing to, to implement. Then managing and enforcing the process once a decision has been made can be expected to be very time intensive and very expensive. So at a time when local authority budgets are under severe pressure, as they've always been under pressure, but now as never before, I find it difficult to believe that local authorities, especially actually, if you think about it, in the very rundown areas where this need will be the greatest, and these will likely be the local authorities that are running the biggest deficits and the most uh, strained um, will have the resources to support this type of project. So there's reason to suppose that it's a power that will be given to local authorities, but one might expect or find that there is reluctance to exercise that power unless it can be properly resourced. But secondly, I think that local authorities will be cautious interfering in the way the bill, or, or perhaps they should be cautious, <laughs> will remains to be seen interfering in the way that the bill anticipates in the private rights of landlords and tenants, perhaps not sim simply because of the litigation risk profile it, it may bring in its wake. Now, Toby mentioned that in draft, the bill seeks to insulate local authorities from claims for compensation, for example, but for letting it an undervalue. But inbuilt, for example, is also the appeal process, uh, appeals to notices um, within, within the very notice uh, procedure. And then potentially there are claims outside the process. For example, one can foresee arguments testing local authorities, whether they are acting effectively as a trustee in a, in a capacity to negotiate and impose on the landlord's behalf terms of an agreement. And that could come with it with a fiduciary duty, which it might be in breach of. Or there could be vulnerability in terms of judicial review proceedings. If, if the challenging the reasons or the parameters of a letting, um, whether it's because they've entered into a deal that is not justifiable, even under strained market conditions. So if they've taken into account factors outside that which the Act has uh, allows it to do, or the bill, I should say, or they've taken into account wrongful factors or acted unreasonably. Now, that's something I expect local authorities would have little appetite for. So coming back to that quote that Toby found in, in Hansard of the, of the debates, I think that my hunch is, they will be much more likely, if they use this at all, to use initial letting notices as tools to kick landlords up the backside, where there is sufficient pressure locally and politically to be seen to be taking action in respect of the high street, but then perhaps a lack of appetite to follow through. So to use those letting notices as a stick to galvanise the landlords. But that, that remains to be seen, and I'm not suggesting at this early stage that landlords can afford to relax and not, uh, that's not a prediction, but it would be imprudent for landlords to be complacent um, about local authorities not taking up the powers that they will be granted if this bill becomes law. It's a very dramatic state-led intervention in the market, quite unlike anything that we've seen. Um, it's very different from security of tenure being imposed on 
tenancies, whether that was going back to the Rent Act or the, or the Housing Act or the commercial sector. This is about the state coming in and trying to regenerate and level up particular regions in the UK and create agreements that didn't and wouldn't otherwise exist and then dump it on people, well, at least on the landlord, who was not a willing uh, participant in that process. We know from experience it's all too easy to misjudge the political appetite for change, and it may well be this is something that in the right area or the wrong area, local authorities may take up. I'll just add one thing to that, Joe, as well, which is that the bill uh, specifically contemplates after a counter notice is given challenging a final letting notice that there'll be a further 14-day period before the landlord can actually submit the appeal to the county courts. And the reason for that is to give the local authority a two-week period within which it can consider its position without incurring the cost of litigation. So it's built in this idea that the notices are this kick up the backside, but the local authority isn't committed to litigation because it can just withdraw the notice if it decides on a reflection that actually it wasn't a very good idea at all. From a landlord's perspective, given that this is potentially coming down the tracks, what do they need to be doing now to avoid their property being subject to an auction? Well, I suppose the obvious answer and the answer the bill is designed to encourage is to let the vacant premises where that's possible so that they are occupied, because then the vacancy condition won't be satisfied and the local authority can't give you a notice. Of course, for the reasons we touched on earlier, that might not prove to be possible for all sorts of reasons. So if it isn't possible to let the premises the first point would be you'd have to consider the detailed provisions of the Act as it's ultimately enacted to, to carefully consider whether there may be other means by which you could avoid a rental auction. Of course, it's, it's probably precipitous of us to comment on the current drafting because that's not what it's going to look like when it's finished. But what I can say is that there are all sorts of um, anti-avoidance provisions throughout the bill. So by way of example, it won't be possible for landlords simply to not engage with the local authority, so not provide information about the premises or access when they've been requested to do so, because that will amount to a criminal offence under the bill. And indeed, the tenancy can be granted without the landlord's input, as we've seen. It also won't be possible to grant a short-term tenancy in response to the initial notice, because to do that, they would have to uh, get the local authority's consent. So they couldn't, for example, uh, enter into a short-term tenancy with an associated company or their mate (laughs) uh, to say, oh, well, we've let the premises now, it's all fine, that doesn't work. Of course, what, one thing that would be desirable from a landlord's perspective would be to engage with the local authority at an early stage of the process, um, because you may be able to persuade them that actually, in relation to particular premises, it isn't a good idea to undertake a rental auction at all, or to withdraw any notice that they've given. And uh, you might also be able to persuade them, even if they do want to go ahead with the process, that they should impose terms which are more satisfactory for the landlord than the terms they were otherwise contemplating. We know that the local authority has to have regard to any representations made by the landlord uh, in relation to the terms, although what we don't know is how much weight they'll actually uh, give those representations. Of course, if the landlord thinks there's a defect in the notices or a ground on which to challenge the notices, then it can give the counter notice and it can go through the appeals process. And as I say, there's this two-week period built in within which the local authority might withdraw the notice in response to the counter notice. But if it doesn't do that, then you'd have to then pursue the appeals to the county court. The last point is that some comfort can be given to certain landlords because Part 8 only applies to landlords in in England. (laughs) So if if the landlord is in Wales, Scotland or Northern Ireland, they don't need to worry about it as presently drafted. I'll make a couple of miscellaneous points as well at the end. The first is that the 
government is proposing to consult on the bill to get, as they put it, input from local authorities and landlords and tenants as to, among other things, how the rental auction process is going to be operated. And obviously anyone with a vested interest, but most likely landlords, might be well served in responding to any such consultation as there may be. The second miscellaneous point is that um, the proposed letting notices will operate as local land charges um, and will bind uh, superior landlords or successors entitled to the landlord. And as I've said, the deemed tenancy contracts or tenancies entered into by the local authority on the landlord's behalf will be deemed to be with the consent of superior landlords and mortgagees. So it may be a good idea for uh, superior landlords, mortgagees and the like to be considering what terms they might want to be including in any new agreements to deal with the new legislation so far as possible. For example, one might envisage new grounds of re-entry being added to tenancies to take account of periods of vacancy with a view to shutting down compliance with the vacancy condition. But I think um, the main point from a landlord's perspective is get on with letting the premises if it's within your gift to do so. And in terms of timings, just a final word in terms of when we can expect to see this coming onto the statute books. I know that the bill is currently at the report stage in the House of Commons, but how quickly might we expect to see something coming into force? Oh, Slightly, how long was a piece of string question? Right, <laughs> it is at the report stage. It's on the verge of its third reading stage, but in the Commons only, hasn't even yet begun its journey through the House of Lords at all. And if amendments are introduced there, and I think I would expect they will be, because I can't believe actually it's got to this stage in the Commons in the shape that it is. There are some remarkably odd features, not least the point Toby began with at the outset, which is there's there seems to be house streets that you and I would norm- ordinarily call high streets are almost carved out of the definition of high street. If anyone still remembers the beginning of the podcast, um, there, there's some really odd bits there that must get a really good close look at in the laws, hopefully. And if amendments are introduced there, then they're going to go back to the House of Commons for consideration. So there is time yet. And who knows, perhaps and quite possibly a general election before we get there. So yeah, especially if the general election year would be 2024, 2024, I think would be general election year. And I, I can't myself see it getting all the way there in a hurry before then. Could be, but def- it's, it, won't, it won't be during 2023 is my confident prediction. <laughs> we'll, we'll update you if it, if it suddenly gets, a, gets its skates on. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, we'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for your time today. That's been a really good, comprehensive look at the Part 8 proposals. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was In on the Act from EG with Sarah Jackman. For more on the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, see the EGI archive at egi.co.uk.